There's a great apocryphal story about what's a few people to ever survive jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge in California. He had attempted to take his own life a number of times before. And this morning, he had made his mind up that this was it. He had to leave his house, get on a tram, then get on a train, and then walk halfway across Golden Gate Bridge. And before he left home, he said, if anybody, just one person speaks to me, I'm not going to do this. And although he was crying and distressed, he traveled all that distance and nobody spoke to him. Nobody put their arm around him. Nobody said to him, are you okay? What he went on to say was that the second he stepped off that bridge, the first thought that came into his head was, I don't want to die. That's all he wanted. He just wanted a wink. He wanted a smile. He wanted a, a, a pat in the back. He wanted someone to say, are you okay? And nobody did. We were all so busy worrying about our own lives and uh, worrying about where we're going on holiday this year, what kind of car we're going to buy next year. Nobody saw this man crying on a train, on a tram, walking down the street or walking across that bridge. Horrendous. In Scotland, men are three times more likely to commit suicide than women. And within Scotland, here in the Highlands, we have some of the highest figures for male suicide. According to the statistics available before the pandemic, those figures were on the up. I'm Bruce McGregor. I've lived and worked in the Highlands all my life and through both my professional life as a musician and businessman, and through my passion for playing rugby, I've known of far too many cases of people taking their own life. It's a sad fact that just about all of us here in the Highlands knows someone touched by suicide. The aim of this podcast, Speaking of Suicide, is simply to share stories and experiences. It isn't all about suicide. Some of the stories you'll hear are about just many of us struggling with the day-to-day stuff of life. The point of the podcast is to get more of us talking. If we don't talk about it honestly and openly, then there's a danger that those statistics will keep on going up with devastating consequences. There's no getting around it. Some of what you're going to hear will be tough, but we hope you'll also be able to see these stories as a celebration of life and the fact that no matter where you're at just now, it's worth holding on and getting help. With that in mind, throughout the podcast, we've got reminders of how you can get in touch with Mikey's line, and at the end of the story, we've got some useful tips and tricks for when you're struggling. Speaking of Suicide has been funded by the Highland-based family firm D&D Paving Limited because the construction industries suffer from particularly high rates of male suicide, and they wanted to do something to help. No matter what industry you work in, tell people about this podcast. Like, comment, subscribe, share it. If we manage to help one person step back from taking their own life, then we've succeeded. And please remember, if you're listening to this and it becomes too much, you can always hit the pause button. 
Yeah, I was born in Inverness and uh, went to school there. Uh, left when I was uh, 15 and uh, moved to England. Uh, spent uh, 40 years in, um, 30 years in London. I'm the series producer Penny Latin, and in this first Speaking of Suicide, I'm talking to Ron Williamson. Ron is the man behind Mikey's line, which, as we're going to hear, he set up after his nephew, Michael, took his own life. So, you mentioned Michael there. Tell me about your nephew, Michael. What was he like? Oh, charming, lovable, smiley, uh, class clown. Um, Always in the thick of it. Um, if there was a joke to be told or uh, um, mischief to be got up to, uh, Michael was there. And did you have much of a relationship with him? Yes, yeah, tremendous relationship. And in fact, the year that uh, he died, 2015, we were in the throes of trying to get him out of Inverness and um, down here to Southampton to carry on with his uh, his chosen profession, which was he, he wanted to be a... Uh, a chef and he had been working in Inverness as a chef but it wasn't really going anywhere Um, and there were some job opportunities for him in Southampton and uh, we got him down here but um, he'd actually he he spent three weeks here in the summer um, and went home before the interviews started coming in and um, he went home for an appointment going off to um, uh, Sunny Bay I think it's called Sandy Bay, sunny, something or other in Bulgaria for uh, for a holiday with the boys. And it was a few months after that that, uh, that he died. How did you hear about Mikey's death? Can you take me back? Yeah, sure. Um, house phone went at uh, 7.30 in the morning. And at the other end was this bear-like animal cry as if um, a bear got its its foot stuck in a in a bear trap and it was my younger brother telling me that 10-15 minutes before then he'd found uh, Michael dead in his bedroom. So Michael lived at home? Yes. Have we any idea what happened? Um, there are various theories. His one of his friends, a, a close friend of his, took his own life on the Saturday before. Um, uh, a kid with a, a very troubled past, a very difficult um, upbringing with a history of depression, um, took his own life on a Saturday morning. Uh, and that was the second one of Michael's friends that year. Uh, the Christmas before, a young fellow called Ryan had taken his life, all the same age group. So uh, Martin went and the news came through on Saturday morning and Michael went on a 48-hour binge uh, of drinking anything and everything and um, going from pub to pub, going from people's houses to people's houses, uh, all doing a week, if you like, for Martin. And he came home uh, after no sleep, just drink for 48 hours. Got home about one o'clock in the morning and went straight upstairs to say goodnight to his father. And they found him at uh, ten past seven in the morning in his bedroom. How did you respond 
to hearing about his his death? How surprised were you? Was this completely out of the blue, Ron? Absolutely shattered and completely um, out of the blue from the the happy, smiling um, character that sat on my couch three months before, um, flicking his Tinder switch from side to side, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. Um, I think Tinder is some dating agency in the local area. And if you put your picture up and Michael was going, yes, yes, no, no, yes, yes, on his, on his phone. So, yeah, a, a, a total surprise, a total shock, just dismay. I mean, we'll, we'll talk later about the, about the impact, what the events are immediately following a suicide within the family. But on that day, Michael had a brother who lived in um, Maidstone in Kent. And so uh, Ian rang him and um, we managed to get James through here to Southampton by noon. And then James and I jumped in my car and drove to Inverness and got there at 10 o'clock at night uh, to be with my brother. I stayed out there for three, three and a half weeks uh, before, during and after the funeral. The question that seems to rise to the top so often is the one of were there any signs? Were there any signs with with Mikey? Uh, he'd lost two friends. He'd broken up with his girlfriend that summer. He did drink a lot. I'm not talking about alcoholism. I'm talking about just a young, a young twenty three year old lady doing the same as, as they all do up there. There were signs of, of depression and, and um, coming back into himself, and he had been seeing a counsellor. But I don't think suicide was on the radar. Self-harming certainly was, and um, bouts of depression were. But as you probably know, people who self-harm and seek help for depression seldom actually take their own lives. So tell me about Mikey's line and how that came about in the aftermath of Uh, of Michael's death. When I came up to Inverness, um, I started looking for uh, all the answers to the questions. And of course, there were no, uh, no answers, you know. Um, but I got speaking to uh, quite a number of his his peers, his his friends, before, during, and after the funeral. It became apparent the number of young people who were suffering from depression, thoughts of suicide. Um, I remember sitting at a table in, during the wake with ten young fellows, ten young men, all in their twenties, three of whom who had attempted suicide. And all the others knew about these three. Um, I just started talking about it because I was trying to get answers as to why Michael did this. And they started telling me about their problems. But one of their problems was that they had nowhere to go. They had nowhere to talk to. Um, If you uh, fessed up, was an expression one of them used, to, uh, to suffering from depression. Uh, you had two choices, really. You you go along to your GP and um, almost immediately get uh, prescribed a chemical cosh um, and then go on the waiting list 
And if you're lucky, you will get to see a psychologist, psychiatrist, consultant, or whatever at uh, New Creeks, um, six months down the line, nine months down the line. Um, in fact, one of the one Labour MSP reported a couple of years ago that it could take up to 700 days from a GP diagnosing um, depression through to actually getting an appointment at New Creeks. And because depression comes in waves with many people, um, if you're waiting six months for an appointment, the appointment could come along during your good period. Yeah. And you've kind of forgotten how bad the bad period was, especially if you're young. You know, you, you've forgotten, forgotten the depths that that depression has taken you to. It comes through, you're planning your holidays, you're, you're, you're off to sunny beach, you're, you're doing whatever. So a lot of them never kept their appointments if they were lucky enough to get them. None of them felt they could really talk to each other about it, you know. Um, Why do you think that is? Well, there's... I was brought up to never back down, okay, is, is the best way of putting it. That's kind of a, a typical Highland upbringing. It took a few black eyes and a couple of lumps to my head <laughs> to later find out that not backing down wasn't always the best option. But um, that was the way that we were brought up to kind of deal with things quietly uh, and to get on with it. Um, it was seen as a, a weakness if a man cried, you know, and it was seen as being a wuss if you were to talk about, uh, about depression. I think a lot of them wouldn't talk about depression because how it would go on their work records. And um, if they took time off work with depression, how it would be seen by their employers as to their future suitability, future promotions, future with companies. And that's right across the board. That's from being a solicitor, a trainee solicitor, all the way down to being a KP in a, a kitchen hotel. People worried about their jobs. So there you are talking to Mikey's friends at his funeral and in the, the, the wake of his death. And did you get any sense of, of what they were all struggling with? Was there any kind of commonality to, to the origins of that depression that so many of them seem to be battling? We have kind of focused on Inverness and the Highlands. Um, and this problem is worldwide. It's, it's not just Inverness and the Highlands. But a lot of theories are kind of put forward, you know, the, the isolation, people on farms and crofts and, and outlying areas um, we're facing, how small Inverness is and the outlying areas, so everybody knows everybody's business. They know their highs and they know their lows. There was no one defining factor mm. that, that would set them apart, but certainly bottling it up was a major part of it not being able to talk to people, not understanding, and thinking each one sitting around that table, there was an element of surprise in other people's faces when these people told me that they'd suffered, that they'd gone through patches like Mikey had gone through. And it occurred to me that if these people could sit and tell an old man, an old stranger, at a table who virtually all of them, I'd only met that once, that was the first time I met them. If they could sit and talk about it to me, 
surely they could sit and talk about it to someone else and open up. And so that's how Mikey's line came about. It is. One of the one of the people, one of Michael's friends I met was this wonderful young lady called Jamie Lynn, Jamie Lynn McBride. And Jamie Lynn had been suffering, um, fighting her own demons for, for a number of years, same age as Michael. And she and I sat down and we agreed that people would talk to us. And they would talk to us because... And they would, they would talk to us because we'd be non-judgmental. But more than anything else, we both thought that they would rather speak to people who had experienced depression, thoughts of suicide, anxiety, stress, self-harm themselves and come through it. So they were talking to someone who actually knew what they were going through hadn't read it in a textbook, hadn't gone to university to find out about it, hadn't got letters after their name and, and using worldwide research. People from their area who knew what it was like to live in Hilton, who knew what it was like to live in Dillybacht, you know, who knew the local area, knew the local problems, knew what they were going through, but it also uh, the light bulb moment when they realize that, that that wee voice in their head that's dragging them down, they're not the only ones that's got it. Everyone's got it. So if we could find people, enough people, to man a, a helpline who had experienced themselves, who could talk on the same level, the same accent, the same empathy and the same understanding, then we would have cracked it. Now, the reason we come up with a, a text line service is that um, we found out when we started doing a wee bit of research that uh, two out of five people who, who call a, a helpline actually hang up when they hear a human voice at the other end of it because uh, realisation sets in. We also worked out that Inverness is such a small place that the possibility of someone ringing up for a phone conversation, recognizing who was helping them at the other end, could have been problematic. So that's where the, the tech service came in. And what was the response like? Um, for the first six months, 100% female, 100% female. We were fighting the same problem of getting young men to, uh, to open up uh, nobody would, would pick up that phone and make that first uh, text. I think we had two texts in the first six months. By this time, Jamie Lynn had gone off and um, pursued uh, another direction in, in her career. Uh, I was coming up to Inverness um, for one week a month, uh, recruiting volunteers, meeting volunteers, getting them trained, just, just getting the ball rolling. Um, and it took finding... Another great youngster. I mean, there have been two, there have been loads of fantastic volunteers, loads of fantastic young people, um, whether they've been manning the phone lines, whether they've been uh, manning the hive uh, drop-in centre, which we'll come on to, um, or, or fundraising or whatever. But the, the second great character I met was a young fellow called Stephen Reed, who was a very close friend of Michael's. And I recruited Stevie, to come in and run Mikey's line. And through having 
a 24-year-old male fronting the line, it attracted more young men. And more young men attracted other men to open up about their feelings. And it started tentatively. But by the end of the first year, we were on about a level par of male-female. We'll continue with Ron in just a moment. But don't forget, it's okay not to be okay. And if you need someone to talk to, you can text Mikey's line on 07786 207755 or contact them via Messenger, web chat or Twitter. Sunday to Thursday, 6pm till 10pm and Friday to Saturday, 7pm to 7am. And how has it evolved since then? Because it started, what, is it five years ago, six years ago now? Yeah, it started um, December uh, 2015. A chap that uh, was very, very helpful to me, I think he's now retired, called Michael Pereira, who was head of um, uh, mental health services at New Creeks. Uh, I, I met and uh, had a few coffees with him in the early days. And he sent me a, a Telegraph newspaper cutting about um, an organization down here in Hampshire, um, which had a, a drop-in center, a crisis drop-in center, where um, if you experienced crisis, you could actually walk in, no appointment necessary, and seek help. If you didn't want to speak, you didn't speak. If you wanted to speak, you did. If you wanted to do a one-to-one, -one, you could. If you wanted to join in a group, you could. And that got me thinking that Inverness had nowhere. Um, people with uh, experienced mental health uh, difficulties wandering the streets late at night were getting uh, occasionally lifted by the police. Uh, the police had nowhere to take them. New Craigs was full. So they were getting locked up. Uh, kept in cells sometimes over the whole weekend because there was just nowhere to take these people. And there were other people who couldn't wait six months and were taking themselves up to A&E at, uh, at Rigmore. And A&E isn't a place for a mental health uh, problem. It is if you've been self-harming and need, to, need that kind of thing. But people just had nowhere to go and nowhere to talk to. So to coincide with the text line, which was totally anonymous, I secured... Uh, premises in the middle of town and opened um, the Highlands uh, from Edinburgh North, first ever crisis drop-in centre, non-appointment led. And um, that's been running COVID permitting, COVID lockdown permitting now for four years. And a good uptake? Very What's good. been the response? Very good uptake. Um, one of the things that we agreed with, with everybody and uh, it's agreed at board level um, incidentally, I've now retired. I, I, I left the organization um, in great hands on my 70th birthday. But uh, one of the things that we agreed is we would never allocate numbers. A, not to scare people off. And B, not to, not to highlight the scale of the problem up there outside those who needed our help. You know, we, we went into this to help people that needed help. We didn't go into it to alarm the public. We wanted people to be aware that there was help there. We wanted people to know what signs to look out for and, and, and how, to, um, how to deal with those signs. 
what we didn't want was everybody looking at the next person, looking at the other person, saying, "Is she? Isn't she? Will she? Won't she?" Yeah, don't want to panic. Yeah, Ron, you you come from this culture. You grew up here. Could you remember that sense of of isolation from your own younger years? Can to what extent can you identify with what? the guys up here go through now? Well, it, it, it was a whole different ballgame when I was growing up. But we, we, were, uh, we were all born, uh, my age group were born just after the end of the war. So I was born in 49. Uh, we're still going through rationing. And most of our parents had been in the war. Um, so there was a lot of middle age, I, I would say from 30 onwards, uh, people dealing with PTSD, although nobody knew what PTSD, it didn't have that name in those days. But there was a whole generation of people who'd, who'd been through a war and come back from a war. So that being brought up, not to back down, was kind of the generation I came from. But I, but I do remember the highs and the lows of Inverness. The work all week for a mad binge Friday, Saturday and Sunday to go back to work in all week. Mm. The highs in the summertime because a uh, huge hospitality industry and not a lot else. So people working, seeing new faces, talking to new people, meeting new people all summer. And then come October, bang, long dark nights, no work because the tourists weren't coming. The holiday season was over. It was just, no, I, I, didn't see a, a similarity, but I, I did get the same sense of aimlessness, not hopelessness, aimlessness amongst the young people up there. You know, it was just, it was living to work, not working to live. And out of interest, how easy do you yourself find it to, to talk about emotions, about difficult stuff? Michael's death has obviously prompted, I'm sure, a whole mass of emotions in you. But has that been easy to share? It certainly helped me. It's it's given me an understanding, and it's it's allowed quite a, a degree of introspection into into what I've done in my life. You know, Mikey's line, Michael's death, and then everything that we've gone through with Mikey's line. This kind of made me realize that I've spent a lifetime hearing but not listening. And um, I've spent a lifetime seeing but not recognizing. So I've spent quite a while, particularly since I, I retired um, from Mikey's Line, I've spent quite a time going back through my life looking at situations I could have handled better if I'd been more attentive, if I'd been more understanding, of cries for help that I never knew were cries for help, of things that I've uh, personally said or done that were without feeling or misconstrued that could have been handled better had I the kind of empathy that I now know is needed and the kind of understanding I now know is needed. So, yeah, it's, it's been a big change for me and that's been prompted by Mikey's suicide absolutely absolutely you know the sheer sheer waste 
of young life. Yeah, you know, I mean, any death, any suicide is a, is a waste. But when you take a young person in their 20s with their whole life ahead of them, some of them already with young families, some of them in relationships, some of them in, in good jobs, they've got their whole lives ahead of them. Adventures that I've been through in my 70 years that they would give their back teeth for, all gone in a, an almost spontaneous, often spontaneous decision. Suicide is quite often a spontaneous um, uh, decision. It's maybe been thought about, but it's never been studied. People who, who have, have long-term thoughts of suicide seldom take their own lives. The large majority or a large percentage of suicides are, are spontaneous. A sudden feeling of total, total helplessness abject loneliness and those are the people that we can't help at that moment because once their mind is made up they will go and do what they're going to do it's the people who are in the thinking stage who will contact mikey's line and contact other organizations and and, and seek help uh, those are the people who don't really want to die suicide is often that in the moment spontaneous thing yeah but of course we're on the ripple effects for the family are huge describe for me from a family's perspective what it is like to experience losing someone to experience losing someone to suicide well i use i use the analogy quite often but it's it's like uh it's like an earthquake. It's like the, the ground opens up beneath you uh, on getting the news and you just fall into this darkness, this, this numbness. And very, very shortly, very quickly after the earthquake comes this giant wave after wave after wave of, of emotion, different emotions, different, um, different feelings. It's a, like a tsunami. You know, you go through first of all, dismay and disbelief, you know, this can't have happened. And then you go through anger and you're angry at the person who took her own life. You know, how could he do this to us? How could he possibly do this to us? And then you're angry with yourself because how could we not see that this was going to happen? You know, how... And then you feel confused as to, you know, what would drive away? You, you start looking for a pinpoint, a trigger point. You know, what would have driven him or her to, uh, to take their own life? Was it us? Uh, was it something we did or was it something we didn't? Is it something we should have seen that didn't see? Um, were we that unapproachable that he or she felt they, they couldn't talk to us? So you go through that helplessness as well. The, the numbness and the, the hollowness uh, never, never leave you. But you've gone through all of those emotions before the grief itself actually strikes. And then that grief is... Because suicide is almost totally, almost always unexplainable, 
it never, the questions never, ever go away. You know, families, the, the ripple effect is that mums will blame dads, dads will blame mums, divorces happen. Um, if divorces don't happen, then unsaid suspicions linger in their minds. Um, you question friendships. Uh, you know, who was he or she involved with it that would have caused this? So you, you end up resenting the friends. Um, the helplessness you feel at the loneliness that the victim must have been, that, that final depth, hollow, hollow loneliness at the last moment is the thing that, that hurts you the most. One of the most common things that comes out um, of suicide is many people think that, that the world is going to be a better place without them and that their families, the children, their parents, their husbands, wives will be better off without them. Uh, they'll find a better better life. Uh, they'll find someone that uh, can afford to buy those new trainers next week that uh, they couldn't afford. Um, they'll find someone who won't be a disappointment week in, week out, who, who can get a job um, who's not dependent on handouts for, who just won't feel a failure. And, you know, that's the biggest myth about it because your family, your friends, your children, your wife, your husband will never ever be better off without you and the world will never be a better place without you. The world needs everyone in it. Children have of suicide victims grow up in the knowledge that their mum or their dad took their own life. Now that will stay with them for all of their lives. Wives, husbands will blame themselves when, when their partner does it. Parents blame themselves when their sons and daughters do it. And I don't believe that people taking their own lives, if they knew the extent of the hurt and grief that's felt by, uh, by the ripple effect of, of their actions, I think there's, there's many a one just wouldn't go through with it. I live a couple of hundred yards um, away from a, a monument to King Canute, um, who, if you remember from history, was, was the king who, who sat down on his throne in front of the tide and tried to stop it. To show his courtiers that he was he was brilliant, and of course he couldn't stop the tide. Ever since then, we've learned how to deal with the tide. We've learned how to build coastal defences to stop erosion. We've learned how to build tide barriers and the Thames to stop exceptionally high tides. We built beach defences all along the south coast and in areas that, that are um, prone to uh, 
to extra high tides during storms and, and uh, bad weather. And they built defences in the fens to stop um, flooding. So he could never stop the tide. But we have developed methods to lessen the impact of it. It's the same with depression and it's the same with, with anxiety and it's the same with stress. We need to, at a very, very early stage, and I'm talking primary schools, we need to be teaching our children resilience, strong resilience. We need to be showing them that bad things happen in the world. All the time, bad things happen. But they need to know that it's okay to be sad when you lose a member of your family, lose your, your granny dies or, or, or your pet dies or, or your friend goes away. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be depressed. But that doesn't mean you're suffering from depression. It's okay to be anxious about um, an exam that's coming up, about how well you're going to do in it. You can be anxious, but it doesn't mean you're suffering from anxiety. And similarly, you can be stressed, stressed out about the new girlfriend you're going to meet next week or, or the, uh, uh, the results of those exams. It doesn't mean that you're suffering from stress. And I think we're far too quick to start labeling our kids with expressions. And those labels of depression, anxiety, and stress, if not dealt with and taught how to deal with them, but we don't teach our children how to deal with them, they can grow into real long, long-term problems that, that end up with, um, with the very subject that we're talking about just now. So we need to be starting, we need to be changing the whole school system so that we start resilience training teaching our kids that it might be bad tomorrow, but it'll be great the next day if you just work at it. Ron, thank you very much indeed. That's okay, my pleasure. Penny was talking to Ron Williamson. A reminder of Mikey's line, if you or someone you know needs help or advice, you can text 07786 207755 or contact them via Messenger, web chat or Twitter. It's available Sunday to Thursday, 6pm till 10pm and Friday and Saturday, 7pm to 7am. Here's Shona McPherson from Mikey's line with a few thoughts for you to mull over. There's so much in what Ron has just shared. And let's just take a moment and look at some of the risk factors that he shared. Bereavement by suicide is a, is a major risk factor. And Mikey tragically lost two of his friends to suicide in just 12 months. Another risk factor is having impulsive or spontaneous behavior. And a third risk factor is self-harm. When we self-harm, it's not that we intend to take our own life, but it is a, still a risk factor for suicide. Ron shares that a lot of the young folks at Mikey's funeral spoke to him about their feelings and their struggles. 
And he believes that it was because he was non-judgmental and that he wanted to listen, that they wanted to share. We can often think that if someone is in great mental distress, there's nothing that we can do. But actually taking the time to listen to somebody and not to judge them can make a massive difference. And that's what Mikey's line and our drop-in service in Inverness the Hive project is all about. It's about listening non-judgmentally to people. It's about giving people in distress our time. We are staffed by both staff and volunteers who are trained in listening, who are trained in mental health, first aid and suicide prevention. And most importantly, who are there because they care. If you are noticing any of the risk factors of being bereaved by suicide, of self-harm, of having suicidal thoughts, of having spontaneous behaviour in yourself or in someone you care for, please text us or please encourage them to text us at Mikey's line on 077-8620-7755 and we'll be there to listen. Speaking of Suicide is an adventurous audio production made possible thanks to the support of D&D Paving Limited in partnership with Mikey's Line. Next time on Speaking of Suicide. One morning I was supposed to go to work and I just got up and took a train, really early train in the morning, shot off, took my SIM cards out of my phone and went to Glasgow. Uh, I had no idea what I was going to do but I was, I had no intention of carrying on.